This is John Anderson Direct with Lawrence Fox. Please note that John Anderson Direct is recorded live via online streaming, which means that sometimes the audio quality is less than optimum. Well, today, something I've really been looking forward to, a conversation with Lawrence Fox. He's a British actor, a musician, and emerging cultural commentator on something of a political road now. As well as critically acclaimed roles in films like The Coming Jane and Elizabeth, The Golden Age, Fox is well known for his co-starring role in the, de in the detective series Lewis, which is a personal favourite of mine uh, and seems to have been born out of the amazing and very well-known uh, Inspector Morse. As well as acting in recent television and Netflix series such as Victoria and White Lines, Fox recently released his second album, A Grief Observed. More recently, Lawrence Fox has been in the headlines for his quite courageous and outspoken position against cancel culture and woke ideology. He's now announced that he's founding a new political party called Reclaim, which we'll talk about more shortly. Uh, but can I just uh, say at the outset, Lawrence, I, I particularly love the way you portray the young detective, James Hathaway, in that series. And uh, what's it like trying to be somebody else, for those of us who are not actors, and to portray a character as sympathetically as you do? Well, I was... Uh, hello, and thank you for having me on first, John. It was... Um, what a great pleasure it was. It, it often depends on the part, really. And I was very lucky that I was written this very enigmatic but rather troubled um, man who didn't know what he wanted to do with his life, whether he wanted to pursue a career in the seminary or whether he wanted to be a policeman, but he was fascinated by justice. And, you know, they, that was an absolute gift of a character to play. Sometimes you can be less lucky, but in that particular incident, I was, um, instance, I was extremely lucky and had so much fun doing it. I can believe it. Anyway, if we can uh, move on from that, uh, in your earlier life, uh, it could be said that you were something of an outsider and a rebel when you were at school. Uh, I understand you may have even uh, faced that uh, a period of uh, suspension or expulsion. Your critics might say that this anti-wokeness is just your natural contrarianism rather than any well-thought-out position. Why do you hold your positions on freedom of speech and culture? And are there any moments throughout your career that really brought home the importance of free speech? Yes, that's an interesting one. Um, well, I was uh, raised like a lot of people. My thoughts and my thinking were built around the family dinner table, where my um, where we were encouraged to, you know, really go at one another uh, in, with argument. And um, my mother, particularly, was a great example of how to listen well. So she would conduct the dinner table, and there was there was almost no boundaries to what we could and couldn't discuss. So. I was very used to that way of communicating. And then when I arrived at boarding school, which is essentially was uh, pre-91 when the Child Act came in, I was um, I thought we would carry on as, as, as we had around the family dinner table. And then I realised that in, um, you know, particularly boys' boarding schools in the 
early 90s that that wasn't what was expected there was a large amount of conformity so um it took me quite a long time to adjust and i became i very non-conformist especially when there were injustices that there were quite a lot of at the time but I mean having said that um schools boarding schools now have changed a lot especially in the UK and I did pick up an absolute deep deep passionate love of language from an from an English teacher who actually also taught my own dad so it was uh, it was a it was a wonderful experience as well as being quite a uh, challenging one for someone who is quite passionately keen to listen to to express and to listen to others express their views. And you raise uh, the interesting point there that spirit of dinner time conversation is something that seems to have played large in the lives of many people who have led in public debate, but it's incredibly uh, increasingly rare now, it seems. I was actually talking to an English speech therapist recently who was saying that young children are having trouble in poorer parts of the UK now, and it would be no different in my country, picking up language skills at all because often they're uh, just not engaged in conversation and their parents, and well, often it's only a parent at home, are more busy on the mobile phone uh, and communicating with emails and texts than they are in developing language skills, let alone ideas uh, around uh, the dinner table with their children. That early influence of, of spirited conversation is a very important thing. I couldn't agree more. I um, It saddens me, actually, that when you look for places to live often in London and in the they will not provide an area for a dinner table often you know people eat off counters and stuff like this i am i'm lucky because i i do have a space to eat and i do when i'm with my lovely boys i cook for them and i eat with them every day so we do get a a good swipe at um discussion and actually it's incredible what my youngest son my eight-year-old has some amazing insights about the world if you just draw them out of them but also i'm i'm slightly reacting to the way that they are taught at school in terms of um lionizing victimhood and uh, re reducing their desire for competitiveness certainly in boys so um it's 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 quite joyous to have that opportunity but i also do spend a huge amount of time staring at my phone as they stare at their iPads. So we are in a in a difficult communicative age. But I do think even in uh, single parent households or when I was lucky enough to have a, a two parent household, it is very, very important that, that you sit down with kids because you teach them the most important things in life, which essentially seem to be the values that we we vaguely call Western democratic values that those of manners and politeness and free expression, uh, free expression and robust discussion and the ability to strongly disagree with someone without losing friendship over it. You know, sort of you dust yourself off afterwards and you and you get back to being friends. And this seems to be lacking. You know, critical thinking in children seems to be lacking and not encouraged There's in the pursuit of equity, which has been going on for such a long time now. Yeah. Interesting, uh, talking of boarding schools, I recently, in fact, only a few days ago, uh, as I said here, had the opportunity to speak to Year 11 and Year 12 at a very prominent and very good Australian boarding school. Uh, and during question time, I was peppered with questions which reflected the fact that they didn't feel stifled in the school environment so much as a society at large. Young people are very aware 
Now, they're expected to conform and they don't feel that they can speak freely. In fact, some of the questions quite evidently reflected a view that they felt obliged to say things often that they don't didn't believe in and don't see as true. Uh, and I think that's very deeply concerning. Uh, to build on your point, young people get what's wrong. They don't necessarily feel very empowered to do much about it. Well, what's um, very scary about that is um, it creates very odd emotional responses in children if you suppress feelings, for example. So if you suppress competitiveness in a boy, which I can testify to firsthand with my son, who who is stuck with this horrible cognitive dissonance of the fact that he wants to win when he plays football, but he's constantly being told that he doesn't have to win and there is no such thing as victory. So... So he's conflicted, and that actually creates in children a, a, an emotion that is very difficult to manage. I I feel that they are encouraged in a, in a monochrome way to look at things in, in in one direction, and and that's really bad. My youngest son again was at school, and when it, it was announced that Donald Trump had um, COVID, he said lots of the school were cheering, and he said he felt deeply uncomfortable about that because he thought, why would you cheer someone who was ill, regardless of what your political persuasion was? So this is right inside of schools and, and, and everywhere else. It's very sad. Well, I agree with that. But now let's come to your profession. You are, by, by mm. any definition, a very, very successful actor. And uh, as I've said freely, I, I love the roles that you play and the way you play them. Uh, and you've been ensconced in the acting uh, community all your life. Uh, your family, of course, uh, that that was the case. The creative community uh, seems to pride itself on its experimentalism and its commitment to non-conformity to what they might call as mainstream and bourgeoisie values. But ideologically, it itself seems to be utterly uniformative, uh, uniformitarian and even boringly predictable. Why is it that a community that likes to be known for its bohemianism and experimentalism, so ideologically uniformitarian? I think a large part of it, sadly, is fear. Um, fear of what uh, most people in show business are self-employed, and so they worry about where their next paycheck is coming from. Um, and therefore, you know, just for, following on from my experience with Equity, the Actors Union, who called for me to be denounced, they are terrified, I think, of losing their profession. So what one does in that situation is one changes one's ideological outlook to suit the most likely chance of being employed. And that in itself creates very mono monochrome monoculture drama and we, we we are missing the days of the great the david leans and the and the great robert bolts and and people who who were truly were trying to make films that they would want to watch and and write films that they would be in, excited to listen to and now we seem to make most things based around um you know the hr policies of diversity inclusion and equity and you know that's fine except that the only thing that we're not uh, including is a diversity of 
thought and opinion. So I find films very flat, a lot of modern films. And I'm a member of BAFTA, even though they have swallowed the Kool-Aid when it comes to critical race theory as well. And they send out their films every year. And I struggled to find one that I really, really enjoyed last year from the hundred or so that they sent out. Yeah, I can understand that. I must say, I find I find it very interesting in Australia that um, if you want ratings, you go to the older. This is really quite extraordinary. Even the commercial networks in Australia, if you want a viewing audience on free-to-air television, you go back to uh, you know the '60s, '70s, and '80s uh, BBC dramas and comedies and whodunits. Uh, most of the modern stuff just doesn't seem to capture people, which I think is quite interesting in itself. Certainly, it's it's not um, challenging the culture; it's propping the culture up. And I think that's a, it's not countercultural. I think it's wonderful when um, films go against uh, the, go against the things that make one one's, one feel safe in one's culture. But also, if you're propping up something so empty, which is what this postmodern woke world is, then the drama that it's going to that's going to support it is going to be not that fascinating. I would imagine, certainly not to me. Lawrence, would you say that there's actually a conscious desire among producers and writers and directors and artists, perhaps, dare I say it, even at the BBC, to get ideological messages into art and entertainment in order to shape the minds of the public? Certainly. Uh, uh, and without any question, the BBC, are, I find shameful in the way that they are ignoring their charter uh, both in drama and in news so um it's yeah the the, the, I, the the thing that also worries is the fact that i don't think they're even aware of it i think they're all so of the same mindset that they're not aware of the bias that they're throwing into their even children's programs like doctor who have lost huge amounts of ratings as they try and make that politically correct and you know it was essentially a very interesting show back in the day but the bbc drama now is almost unwatchable and the news has been is being editorialized we're having the introductions by emily maitlis who presents Newsnight. she's doing fox news style introductions but <clears throat> excuse me from from very much from the left and it's that's absolutely against the charter of the bbc so i think the bbc's reputation is taking a big hit but having started to criticize it which i have done and um there is another organization run called defund the bbc in the uk the bbc of uh, boris johnson started making noises about putting in paul dacre possibly to run it and uh and uh, new chairman but i'm not sure it's uh, salvageable i think they've gone they've, they've lost the public trust they're the cnn of the uk we've almost reached the point where as a very senior newspaper man said to me the other day in australia you simply have to accept the reality and profile the politics of every news source that you take on board uh, including the publicly funded ones uh, and then try and um, if you like, set yourself a series of sources of information and try and discern the truth from the fake news amongst it, which I find appalling. The whole purpose of having publicly funded broadcasters is that you feel that they will be objective. Uh, and I find, quite frankly, in Australia, I think the most powerful way to put it is that I don't think I should really know the ABC's position 
on anything. In fact, I feel I know its position on virtually everything. And the BBC seems to be much the same. Absolutely. It's very predictable. And if anything, the BBC is, some, is something that does um, wrap a slightly wrap a gentle bl blanket around our culture and should you know, push us in the right direction. But at the moment, it seems to, as one BBC journalist who I spoke to the other day, excuse me, said um, that the lunatics are in charge of the asylum over there. So they will walk around uh, uh, and say, this is how I'm going to present my show. And if questioned, they will... Um, they will essentially make threats against the management. This is what I'm told by someone quite senior in the BBC. So, yes, once you know the BBC's position on one thing, as is often the case with this, these very progressive people, you also know their position on almost everything else. In fact, you could tell them to be quiet and tell them their position and they'd probably agree with you. <laughs> it's that predictable. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Um, uh, well, that brings us to the issue of diversity. Uh, you've made the comment, I think, that the British heritage, real British heritage, embodies what you call true diversity. Can I ask what you mean by true diversity and what you would describe as false diversity and where you might find that false diversity? I think, yes, I think it's good. True diversity is a, is a, it's a, it's about viewpoint, isn't it? It's about opinion and false diversity is about obsession with immutable characteristics that's the only the simplest way i can i can define it um and therefore we get to the point certainly here in the uk i don't know how it is in australia where if you don't have the right opinion but you happen to be uh, non-white skinned or you're black skinned and you have the wrong opinion you're no longer black in the same way as um, a friend of mine who I did a video with the other day talking about critical race theory, someone responded by saying that he should have the black beaten back into him. So that's false diversity. And um, true diversity is to, is to take what Martin Luther King said. I know it's becoming a tired old trope now, but I think the content of character over colour of skin is, is very important. And the BBC certainly have spent huge amounts of times, uh, time working on their diversity, inclusion and equality policy, but just they missed out the thought part of it and opinion. So um, yes, in simplest terms, true diversity is uh, diversity of opinion and false diversity is, is diversity of characteristic, physical or otherwise. Now to come to what this means politically, this is very, very important because we do live in an age, referring back to the young men that I was talking to at a boarding school the other day, where people don't feel that they can put their perspective and they don't feel that they can challenge the orthodoxy either. Yet progress, it seems to me, in our culture when it was operating on truly liberal principles, was made by people feeling that they could put their ideas on the table. The ideas would be discussed rather than themselves becoming the issue. And people could ask questions. But it seems now that you're not allowed to ask questions. You must you must not question the reigning orthodoxy, which is politically constipating. And I would have thought, well, I'm convinced, is extremely dangerous. Not least of all, because you have large parts of the community who feel simply left out, not represented. I actually think that's precisely what produced Brexit and what produced Donald Trump and that whole upheaval. But progressivism seems blind to it and charges on regardlessly insulting those and marginalising those who 
dare to disagree in a way that is very counterproductive to a properly operating, harmonious and democratic society. Absolutely. Well, the problem is it's not progressive, it's regressive. And the reason why that they don't want to, um, you're not, one's not allowed to express oneself is because their arguments are very flimsy. And also they're often deeply, deeply hypocritical as well. And I suppose we're, we're in an area, we're in a period of capitalism and or, or Western civilization uh, more broadly, where we are navel gazing. And we are we're encouraged to 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 brutally dismantle the past from our own highly exalted positions of um, it's almost like we're at the apotheosis of history that nothing will ever improve from this point forward. So it's our position to look back, and particularly in England, where where the conversation about colonial guilt is is coming in to the point where one Churchill is being taught to students as a, a, a sort of fascist, racist traitor. And you can see it with people coming out of university. And it's just very sad because, you know, this man really uh, stood alone in many ways against um, the onslaught of fascism through Europe. But now you'll find students sitting there saying, well, the Bengal famine, Bengal massacre, and you'll go, yeah, of course, but we have to be able to hold more than one reason in our head uh, and one feeling in our head about um, the, those that have led us before without looking at them with great disdain, which is so sad because we've, we'd, Britain, however small it is, has an important role to play in the world and always finds its role to play in the world. But at the moment, those that would wish us ill are saying that we're the worst thing that ever happened and the whole world was beautiful and was sunny and shiny until colonialism and then evil began. And it's it's just, it's a, it's a modern white guilt revisionist version of history, which isn't, A, isn't true and B, is extremely divisive. And if you raise that with somebody in conversation, they will either call you a racist, as I'm frequently called, or they will say that you're denying the uh, the tragedies that have come before to other people, and it's, it's it, you're denied the conversation because it's just a univariant conversation, always based around race, never based around any other thing like structural inequality or anything like that. I find it very boring actually talking to some of them. <laughs> I know that word boring got you into quite a bit of trouble. Yes. <laughs> Yes, it did get me into trouble on question time. I think it is boring to say. I think it's very sad to um, to, to take an immutable characteristic and say that that defines the person because it lacks nuance in the story. In the, in the same way I was always taught as a child, as, as it was one of those sort of things you're taught as a child, which is kings can be unhappy and poor people can be happy. You know, it's not, you're not, you're not happy based solely around where you fit in the in the social hierarchy and it allows you as a child to explore values and the idea that not everything's down to money or the color of your skin or how you were born that you have opportunities and you are responsible for yourself and your future it lies to a great extent in your own hands as much as far as what you can achieve practically and we're just removing that now and saying, and it's very patronizing. It's very rude. A lot of the people that I work with who are working with me on Reclaim are by no um, deliberate action, people that aren't white skinned. And I think it's particularly hurtful for some of them to be spoken to in a way as where they need to be protected by us white saviors. And we 
our white guilt is solved by helping them out. But they're sat there going like this, well, I'm smarter than you are. I, I, I have as much opportunity in life as you can. And they, and I really feel that, that drawing attention to skin colour in that way when we are so, we are such a progressive society to then, to then come and go, it's because you're a white privileged male or because this woman of colour is, you're just, it is, it's, it's boring. I'm sorry to say, it's like there are many more interesting conversations to be had. Let's talk about the mutability of characteristics and the mutability of thinking and the excitement of of what rational reason debate can do. Let's not start at an unlevel playing field where um where where the majority of the population are the losers. Yeah. I thought that Matthew Paris had a very interesting insight. He's a for those who uh are not familiar with him, a very prominent uh, commentator in Great Britain. And when the first round of tear the statues down movement emerged in Britain and there was a desire to remove Cecil Rhodes' statue in Oxford, he made the point it would be much wiser, surely, to leave it there and put a statue of the King of the Zulus on the other side of the street and tell both stories and recognise that Rhodes got some things right, right, perhaps he got some things wrong, and then there's a whole story about the true nature of uh, humanity to be told about the King of the Zulus as well. And that's the great problem when we teach somehow or other that all evil is the result of white supremacists and that even Winston Churchill, who defeated, stood alone against fascism. I'm a free man here in Australia today, as I see it, as a historian, by the way, uh, because Churchill stood when no one else would. That's pretty profound. But to not teach history in a balanced way is to overlook something that I think is very significant, the story of extremism in the 20th century and how disastrous that was. And you think communism claimed probably 100 million people one way or another. And Nazi trying to erase history in the Cultural Revolution. He wanted all old thinking washed out of the system so that people could be completely shaped by the Communist Party that was in charge of China. It turned into something that was utterly reprehensible, brutal beyond belief, murderous, and that's washed out of history because it's all our fault. It's so tragic. I have a real bugbear about, um, certainly about the statues, because I don't feel it's our responsibility. I, I feel it's our responsibility to be custodians of history. It, do, they, it doesn't belong to us. I, I'm, I don't totally agree with Matthew Paris on putting up a statue of the Zulu, but I do feel that you don't take a statue down. You put something up next to the statue so a parent can take their child to see the statue and they can get a more broader sense of who that person was. But we do not have a right to, to tear these things down because... Um, it is exactly what's happening. It's it's er- the erasing of history and this desire to to cause to create equity. The, and the reason why it fails so badly is is this the need for bureaucracy, the the amount of bu- bureaucracy it would require to make everybody have the same equality of outcome, is is murderous in itself. So we end up with. I think people want to give it a go, though. 
in the UK. There was a very concerted effort last week to say that Lord Nelson's hero status was going to be revoked. And um, uh, thank goodness for people like the Nelson Society, who really looked into this letter that uh, associates him apparently with a slave owner in the Caribbean. And um, thank goodness for them. They produced all of the evidence and they and they released it out. But, the, you know, we shouldn't really be having a conversation when a man lost his eye and his arm trying to fight for our country and of course they were different times but again it, it boils down to this we've reached the we we the woke religion has has superseded all other things and can therefore judge history in whichever way it chooses to whereas i would say absolutely not we keep these statues up and you wouldn't find people from our side of the argument defacing or removing karl marx's uh, grave from highgate cemetery we need it, it. It needs to be a conversation and a democratic one, not a riot and a tearing down of statues. We're yeah. we're we're more developed than that. And, and yes, uh, well, I can only agree. But to 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 change gears and to move on, mm. as I understand it, you don't think that either the Conservatives or Labour in Great Britain today embody English values anymore. Um, one of my more regular interviewees, Peter Hitchens, uh, observed that much of this, in his view, occurred during the Blair years. How do you think these British values came to be so completely forgotten and astute in a way that they appear to be at the moment? It's very hard for me in Australia to understand how a culture as old and venerable as Britain's can so quickly change course. I think it's been going on for a very long time, worryingly, certainly through education and the universities. I find myself as a as a non-university educated person, I'm actually I'm I feel very blessed not to have gone to university because some of the spiel that comes out of uh, graduates that I meet nowadays is very difficult. I think Blair was a globalist, wasn't he? So he was he's um, far less interested in, in the values that are unique to Western democracies or Britain in particular. And um, the both the parties I don't, well, actually, interestingly, since I've started making noises, the Conservatives have started to be a little bit conservative, which I take as a bonus. But, you know, there's still, this is a Conservative government that rather than put policemen on the street in deprived areas, uh, so that those areas can have lower crime rates and therefore be more attractive to investment. This is a Conservative government that are investigating 66 non-crime hate incidents a day for people's thoughts and tweets. And also, you know, has up until recently, they've started to be some progress on it, was allowing a man to self-identify as a woman with, for whatever reason he wanted to do. And this is, um, this is not what I would see as conservative government. Uh, conservative thinking and certainly in regards to the statues and things like this we need very strong leadership over this stuff this is and they haven't really warmed to those cultural uh, problems that we're facing and in terms of the Labour Party I was hopeful that the Labour Party would become better organized with uh, Sir Keir Starmer but very early on, he was taking the knee to Black Lives Matter, which, as we all know, is a proto-Marxist movement. And um, it, it, it just hates the nuclear family and wishes to defund the police, etc. And he's still he's taken the knee to them. 
And he's also, which in England and I suppose in Australia must have the same uh, significance. It, it's usually done either to the Queen or when you propose to be married. It is a, it, it is an, it is an, an idea in an area of subservience. And then he's followed this up, Keir Starmer, by talking by. Um, swallowing the critical race theory vibe and uh, I find that just so sad because I think the people that want to elect him are would be laborers people the working people of this country not Keir Starmer's you know especially in, in my annoyance about how tolerant we are we're talking about black and Asian ethnic minority another awful word BAME that's managed to work its way into our um, language. There's, there is an overrepresentation of BAMEP people in show business, for example, and there is no ethnic pay gap between 16 and 30 year old black and white people in the workplace. So for the leader of the opposition to be to be saying, talking about structural and systemic racism in this country is, I mean, it's just absolutely maddening, I find. I think, what's the point in you? So I think both parties are quite woke. Well, we, we, we at the moment, we're living in a one-party state called lockdown. So um, <laughs> I think we have to, you know, we need an alternative. We need we need somewhere for the, for the Brexit, the people that voted Brexit, the people that um, are interested in their cultural heritage and those that believe in free speech. That's why I can't pin myself to either mast, I'm afraid. I understand then that you're starting a new political party called Reclaim. What exactly are you seeking to reclaim, Lawrence? I'm seeking to reclaim the conversation, uh, reclaim the right to have a reasoned and freely expressed conversation without fear of having your life being cancelled. And, you know, and, and standing in principle defence of things like reason and discipline and good manners and the ability to listen, and also to have a look at our cultural institutions and have a look at the way they are funded. Um, and certainly the British Museum, who are also threatening to take down statues of the police, again, as I've mentioned with these non-crime uh, hate incidents, is to, is to have a look and ask the people where they would like their tax money spent. Would they like it to be to celebrate and be on it, have an honest conversation with our culture about who we are, but also to have government and to have their representatives be there to support and uphold and promote British values because they are and Western democratic values because they are they're crucial around the world. We need to you, you cannot progress. As a, as a society at all, in my view, um, by stifling the freedom of speech of people and you, by calling everyone a racist who disagrees with you is, is, is deeply regressive. So I love this beautiful union of ours and, I and I'm also very proud of some of the things that we've exported around the world while being honest about some of the things that haven't been good. But we mustn't hate ourselves. It's not, it's not, we need to, we, we need to look at the things that we've done and be, and, and, you know, take some pride at least in passing common law and democracy and our language around the world, a lot of it for good. And I don't believe there is anyone that's representing us in that way. Well, three fundamental principles, as, as I understand it, of Reclaim. Firstly is freedom, including of speech. Secondly, intellectual diversity in public institutions. And thirdly, valuing British heritage. But to focus on two, how do you think over time institutions that we've talked about, the BBC, schools, civil service, um, acting and drama and uh, media, 
Now, universities can be reformed to more adequately reflect the diversity of thought, the real diversity of thought that must still exist in Britain. There must be many people who are deeply concerned about what is happening at the same time as they're uncertain about how to tackle it. How do you think it can be tackled? I mean, you've taken a logical and courageous first step. You've put your paw up and you're, you know, you're prepared to lead on it. But, but what's the vision in terms of how we tackle and turn this around? Well, I, I certainly think it, it's, it must start with children. And I'm currently working actually on, on some stuff around this in terms of the fact that if we can teach all children from an early age, from whichever, from whatever background, these simple things that I keep banging on about, you know, good manners, the ability to understand what, how to relate to someone who's got different values to you and how to have a reasonable and rational discussion and disagree and remain friends. If you can teach that to children around the table, then you've got year one of essentially a 30-year project underway. I think also we need to look really seriously at whether the BBC should be paid for by the, we should essentially have a television tax. I don't think we should. I think people should be free to choose whether they want to watch the BBC. So the BBC should be defunded uh, and allowed to operate in the open marketplace and see how it gets along, which I'm sure it would be fine. And in terms of... Um, the civil service and and areas like that to 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 absolutely remove critical race theory from these institutions this unconscious bias training which has no um even the even the authors of unconscious bias training have have removed themselves and distanced themselves from that and then just thinking about universities if you're going to you cannot deplatform people the nature of just deplatforming people that don't agree with you it creates an intellectual fragility in students and it's very important that their minds are allowed to develop you who who was it that said you you if you don't understand your opponent's argument you don't understand yours either I can't remember who that was John Stuart Mill John Stuart Mill so um, if you haven't truly it's... understood the position of the other mm. person your own position of it is almost worthless yeah exactly so they're being taught a very mono, monochrome view of the world and I think that we should again it's about any institution that is funded by the taxpayer. If it's going to buy into critical race theory, which essentially is 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 what is coming in along with this wokeism, um, I think you do, you take away the funding, and you you ask the people what they want to spend money on. I think you'd get I think you'd get a fairly confident majority view that they don't want to teach uh, children get coming all the way through school to hate themselves, and certainly in terms of also just on a side issue, the sexualization of children in in our culture in the United Kingdom, I find appalling with the uh, sex and relationship education at five in schools. I think that let's not be teaching kids about sex at five. Let's be teaching kids about when you say something and someone's speaking back to you, how to listen to them and be polite and well-mannered. Because that will also mean that across society and across different uh, financial um, areas with, with kids, that they'll be able to speak to each other and and possibly the societies will be more progressive that way. Well, definitely they will actually, in my view. You touched a moment ago, if I could just go back to it, to the sort of authoritarianism that we've seen around uh, the enthusiasm for lockdowns and control of the public in the context of uh, COVID-19. What would Reclaim's perspective on 
on that new authoritarianism and the desire, it seems, of people to be uh, uh, locked down at enormous cost because that cost is so high that it may very well mean that in most Western countries, the next generation of of um, our citizens, our children, will simply not have the jobs and the opportunities that we've taken for granted. It's it's utterly appalling. I, I can see how it's happened, and I and I am empathetic to the sympathetic even to the to how it happened. We thought we were facing a very well. We didn't know what we were facing, but we thought we were facing a very deadly virus. And once you've once you've instilled fear into a population, it's very difficult to remove it. I imagine. So, in terms of the lockdowns, I don't believe. I've actually started to not believe the government polling. There's a, a polling organisation called YouGov that says 40% of people may continue to support lockdowns, whether there's any problem or not. I think we're in a we're in a collective daydream that we we do have to wake up from. Carol Sakura is saying there's going to be 35,000. Uh, unnecessary deaths from cancer as a result of these uh, turning the National Health Service into the COVID National Health Service. And um, and uh, Sunitra Gupta is saying there's going to be 130 million dead worldwide as a result of our lockdowns and their lockdowns. You know, people in, in much less privileged countries than ourselves, they can't afford to lock down. There is no infrastructure to stop um to support them through it and we're, we're furloughing our our workers here our public sector workers and private sector workers have been furloughed but that that will have to stop i think what the government need to do is take a, a take on board what the great barrington declaration is saying which is that we the young people need to take responsibility here in the same way as in a time of war the young men and women of this country need to stand up and go, okay, we're going to get on with our lives and we are going to get, we'll, we'll do all the important things that are safe, like trying to keep a bit of distance and, you know, keeping our good hygiene, but we need to get on with our lives. And then we protect and look after the elderly and the vulnerable. Uh, you know, and that doesn't just mean holistically and, and personally, and, and it means financially as well. So I think we're at a very, certainly they're saying possibly 200,000 jobs in the hospitality sector in the UK will be gone in the coming weeks as the result of these new tier lockdowns that we've come in. And I feel the government are extremely reactive to it. And actually what you need is someone to say, we will get through this. Young people go out there and let the virus do what viruses do, which it's going to do anyway, which is work its way through the population and go from pandemic to endemic. And then we can essentially get on with our lives. But there's a dread fear, and it's also very uh, closely tied in to this woke religion. The problem of the woke religion, they've politicised COVID-19 to a point of if you're pro-lockdown, uh, you're a good person, and if you're pro-liberty, you're a bad person. But they have a, they, the religion of, of woke doesn't have a saviour other than yourself. So they have a huge problem with the idea of death, whereas in the past in the Christian societies, death was part of life and we were closer to it. In the woke religion, they're upset about death. I think a lot of them wouldn't be would be happy to be locked down until we'd solved death. And that shows how utterly bonkers it is. So I think a sort of a sensible, uh, sensible way of dealing with it yeah, as laid out, I think is the right answer. As uh, someone who spent a lot of time in a reforming government where we actually obliterated public sector debt, at a federal level in Australia. I look at Britain, a country I love and admire, I have to say, 
I'm not blind to its faults, never have been, I hope. But nonetheless, I think its contribution to civilization has been massive. There you go. That's what I think. Um, I find it deeply concerning that Britain's public finances are in a position that are now so, it is now so precarious that the impact on coming generations may be devastating. So if you're worried about staying alive now, what it will mean in terms of lost job opportunities, or incapacity to fund the services people want, to look after people in old age and pensions and what have you, let alone maintain things like spending on infrastructure and roads and good schools, even defence. It's deeply concerning. Public sector debt is absolutely massive and exploding. And every time you go for more lockdowns, the economic implications for the future are very profound. But wokeness, of course, seems almost intent upon pretending economics doesn't matter. You can just print money. Well, you know, you produce an oversupply of anything. Sooner or later, you'll collapse the price of it, including money. It can't go on forever. You can't print money. You can't go on mounting debts indefinitely and still keep an open, free, prosperous and good society to live in. It doesn't happen. Mm. It's tragic. It's absolutely tragic. And and what's even worse is that is that they spent they encouraged people to to make their so certainly my local um pub down the road, he was in pieces, you know, for the first lockdown. And they said, right, we're gonna open you up, we'll open you can open back up. And they put a lot of measures in place. So they're spending a lot of money to make their places COVID secure anyway. And then they've just been told, no, you're you're you have to shut down again. It doesn't feel that there's a there's a we need some we need somebody to stand up and say this is going to hurt a bit but we are going to get through it and what we're hearing now is we're hearing very dramatic language the health secretary here who how he's still in a job i have no idea um tweeting things like this virus is going to rip through the population and it's like why are you engendering fear in people and as you say the the future is looking extremely bleak if we continue to shut our economy down and we should we we can't do this with our debt, but no one wants to really. the The problem is because it's been politicised by the woke. They you're you're not compassionate. And I think that the Tories actually, sadly, would rather save a fewer fewer lives by having a strong COVID lockdown policy than they would save the hundreds and hundreds of lives that they're going to lose as a result of it and look good. There's no leadership. It's very tragic. Yeah. Now, that, you just said a very interesting thing. Um, you know, to be woke is to insist that you're compassionate because you're trying to keep people alive. But you recently described wokeness as a, quote, Marxist cult with no forgiveness and no love in it. I'm mm. interested because I do think that we are developing a society that is unbelievable. Cancel society, by definition, is one that finds it hard to forgive and hard, impossible probably in a social media age to forget. And I think that is unbelievably dangerous and damaging. Um, I'm also very intrigued that you've got quite a few people around now who are not people of faith. I can think of extraordinary writings of both Tom Holland and of Douglas Murray. So people not of faith, but they are saying, I think, that forgiveness and love are plainly cultural deposits of Christianity. And I can't help wondering whether in reality, wokeness with its harsh authoritarianism dressed up as compassion is not in fact part of a bigger cultural shift away 
from our, if you like, Christian origins or Christian foundations? I think it's I think it's the uh, it's the substitute, which is what makes it even more frightening. I often say to when I'm quoting bits of the Bible at people, I often say to them, you don't have to believe uh, you don't have to be a Christian or a Jew or a Catholic or whatever it is. But tell me why this isn't helpful to us, as a, even as a secular manual. If you take away all belief uh, and faith in God out of it, the the stories, the proverbs, you know, a manual for living that the proverbs is called. Why why are we turning our way on what is essentially possibly? I mean, I think they I think Cain and Abel's they they think it's probably a forty thousand year old story, you know, that we that we have this repository of knowledge and and these ideas of forgiveness and repentance that are actually really equitable ideas which is what's so wonderful why have we shunned it and thrown it all away and and we're, but we're still so hungry and thirsty for that religious fervor that people have and at the end of the day we've just replaced it with a brand new religion but it lacks uh salvation it lacks repentance and it lacks forgiveness so but it has all the same qualities you know you're kneeling you're reciting um you know pledges and you you've got the 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 white privilege being the original sin and it's it's just it's a religion but much more it's more a cult i think actually and almost a death cult wrapped up as a very compassionate thing it it's almost a, a race to the top of wokeness in the same way it's probably a, a race to the top in isis is how many heads you can cut off and how many suicide bombers you can sort out. It's like you can never be too woke. Whereas in Christianity, the idea of the fact that you are fallen and there is original sin and that you you must you can through your life and with God's guidance, you know, have a positive influence on this planet. There there is wokeness has none of this. Wokeness is is religion without without hope. And it's therefore horrible terrifying actually as well um because you look at how violent they are and how how intolerant they are of anybody else's thought so it is like an extremist cult and it could morph and it sort of is morphing slightly in america into you know what is antifa which becomes you know it becomes violent and murderous so instead of loving your neighbor we now have a nice line in hate for anybody who disagrees with us rather than doing unto others as we'd have them do unto us, uh, we seem intent upon, you used the word earlier, regression to a more violent age where we will just not suffer those who have a different perspective. There's no concept of a shared humanity, much more a concept of a part of humanity that deserves elevation and a large part of humanity that is unconscionable and only deserving of continuity. Attempt. It's very hard to see any hope in wokeness. Oh yes, I don't think there. I don't think it's about hope. I don't think it's. I think it's about righteousness. And one of the great things of of, of Christian teaching about the fact that we are sinners is that it it it, it keeps a good eye on your ego. And um, if this if the only sin if if I don't think within a woke person. Uh, if that's what we'll loosely call them, that there is any concept of sin within them. 
with that there is any concept of the fact that there may be their intentions and motivations may be flawed in some way. I think they think the total opposite. I think they're looking everywhere but inside themselves for the problems that need to be cured and rectified by their own unutterably inconsistent self-righteousness. Yeah, that, that question of pride, I think it was C.S. Lewis who said that if you're self-obsessed, lost in pride, it's impossible for you to see, look upwards and see something greater than yourself, uh, and it's impossible to look out and see other people because you're looking down on them. Mm. And that pride lies at the heart of every human failing. I thought it was an interesting insight from, I dare say, another Briton who would be regarded today, despite his enormous standing in Britain uh, in the 20th century. And there was a man that the BBC reeled out to promote and build morale during the darkest days of the fight against fascism in Europe. But he would be regarded by the woke, I suppose, as part of the problem rather than somebody that helped lift Britain. It's very sad, this, this, this complete rewriting of history. But another aspect of heritage, British heritage, that you've, you've spoken of, you've said that British heritage is steeped in the innate values, I'm quoting, of families and communities, what perhaps Edmund Burke would have called the little platoons. How can cancel and woke culture be addressed at the family level? You touched on this, but I just, I'd like to almost, if you like, go back there because mm. of children. I mean, I think from what I know of you and listening to your talk, you've got children. You're very, very committed to them and to doing everything you can to try and not only raise them the right way and give them, instill in them the sense of, of proportion, of balance, of hope, of perspective, of modesty, but to do what you can to create a better society for them or at least try and hold back some of the worst excesses how do you think people now help their children? You've touched on the dinner table, but this yeah. needs to be part of it. We've got to, I think the first thing is we've got to say to parents, don't outsource the raising of your children to the state because the state's got very hungry uh, with all of its uh, apparatchiks uh, in, in, in the media and in academia to tell your children who they should be and how they should behave. Parents, I think, have the greater responsibility there. How do we rebuild that, do you think, Lawrence? I think I, give, them the, give them the confidence to do that uh, is probably the most important thing. And, and some tools. So for me, certainly, uh, you, I, the way I deal with my own children is I say to them, I don't mind what you think at all, but you just have to explain to me why you think it. And you teach them the, the, the ability to, to, to think critically. And then you teach them the responsibilities of, of, of being unclear in their thoughts. So if, they, if one of my kids says something um, not very bright or he hasn't thought it through very well, my dad, for example, or, or my brothers, will, will, he'll be told. You know, it, it's, just, it's to toughen them a little as well and to not celebrate this victimization that exists in children. So the more a child suffers, the, the more one needs to pay attention to them. It's to remind children that the best things that happen in your, in your life will come about from a series of situations, not all of them pleasant, and that life can be very, very difficult for you. And I think then, again, rallying around the idea of a shared culture, so not working on this idea of multiculturalism, which in my view is an absolutely failed um, experiment in England, uh, in the UK, certainly, and we were, and it was forced 
on upon us and we again those of us that wanted to 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 maintain and celebrate what we felt were British values were told that we were all racists. So it's to return to an idea that we are British. What what are the things that British? Uh, what are the things that the British stand for? And then that also has a, has a double effect of making your skin colour irrelevant. You you raise this very interesting distinction, and I think it's an incredibly important one: the conflating of racism uh, and and culture. Uh, it's, it's a complete absurdity, really. The, the most uh, cursory consideration uh, of the fact that belief systems have nothing to do with race uh, will tell you that um, racism and culture are not the same. But there has been, as you say, this race to conflate the two and to call people a racist if they want to defend their own culture which seems absurd to me because the very reason that so many people have wanted to come to free, open, democratic societies, which have deep cultural roots in what might be called the idea of the rule of law, that in itself is something that comes from the idea, I think, uh, of, of a Christian thinking that uh, nobody should be above the law, nobody should be below it. We all have unique value. Why? Have we allowed this idea to take hold that somehow if you have a doubt about multiculturalism, you're a racist? It seems to me to be intellectually dishonest and utterly morally bankrupt and in the end very self-defeating. Well, I think it, it's it, in the same way as wokeism is a virus. What it does is it attacks the weakest part of the cell and the cell the weakest part of our western democratic cell is our compassion so if someone tells us that we're racist we will go oh sorry what can we do to to solve that problem much before we will have an a, a, an intellectual discussion with them about whether that's true or not so i think it exploits our gen generous and open humanity but i do think the the pushback against it now is quite strong there are people that are that are starting to stand up against it but it doesn't prevent that the 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 media are all in cahoots with it as well as i said to you them not broadcasting this show that i did well this uh, example of a very tolerant kind uh, empathetic left winger screamed racist at me for an hour on television it's it's insane i don't know what we can do about it other than the more people that stand up the better i mean we've had 20,000 join um register their interest in in reclaim in in just over 2 weeks so that's that's a huge number and i think you've just got to take the message out there to people, give them the alternative and say, it's not racist. And I say it to people frequently. I've lots, I, I, have, um, I was walking through the mall in Camberwell the other day and, I, and this uh, old lady with black skin came out of the shop and she grabbed me by the cheeks and she went, you're for me, you will speak for me. And I just thought, there you go. We're all, we're lots, all people want to do is have the right to an opinion. And we are fight when we're fighting for the right to an opinion. You know your your culture is in trouble. Your culture cannot be driven by narrative. Your culture must be driven by reality. Realities change. Uh, you know, several decades ago, you could be chemically castrated for being gay, but and now we celebrate 
uh, equal sex marriages, uh, same sex marriages in uh, in our culture. But the narrative uh, is starting to overtake the facts. So they're saying that's not enough. You're if you're not really racist, you're unconsciously racist. If you're not unconsciously racist, you're a white supremacist. These structural inequalities are all down to race. And you're just going, no, 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 no. That's not true. That's that may be how you feel. And that may be the narrative, but it isn't the truth. And what we need to, again, teach children is the truth and personal, back to that, Marv, remember my point, is that kids, the way to to, to make kids feel, give kids self-esteem, and one of the things I'm really looking at at the moment is to, to have a lot running alongside their education, uh, their responsibilities and their contributions to their society. So it, uh, what I would call a national contribution, that when they finish uh, GCSE schooling, that they spend a couple of weeks of that summer holiday that they're really looking forward to because they've worked so hard, going and doing something, contributing to our to our nation in whatever way that is, be it through an apprenticeship or learning something or going working in a factory. And then when they finish school at the end, uh, spending a longer period, doing exactly the same thing so that they know that they are working towards maintaining and building and and progressing society so that as they then become those that are going to create the next generation they're passing on as reagan said you know passing freedom on rather than having it destroyed well lawrence has been terrific talking to you i can't help thinking that your skills finally honed as an actor will help you very much articulate powerful and important ideas in a way that people can understand and relate to. Uh, and that in, uh, if you like, setting a vision and being able to articulate it, you will indeed be able to carry many with you to help build that vision of a restoration, really, of the tolerance uh, and of the uh, uh, decency that most of us associate traditional British society uh, with. So um, thank you very much indeed. Can I ask you a final question? What sure. was the favorite moment, your favorite uh, character and a favorite moment uh, that we can all go and have a look at uh, uh, in your acting uh, career? Uh, what was my favorite moment? I think I very much actually enjoyed that final scene of um, Becoming Jane, where I say the first lines of Pride and Prejudice to her, or, or um, is it Pride and Prejudice? I think it is. And um, I just remember shooting on this beautiful day as the weather was, um, uh, as it was autumn and, and it was just right. The sun was just above the, the ridge and we, it's a long walking scene and we did it in one shot and we did it in one take and it felt like, what acting should feel like, which is instant, honest, and pleasurable. You've been listening to John Anderson Direct. For further content, visit johnanderson.net.au.